Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. You came out hot on that. <laughs> well, that last like, week right? I messed Made it me up. jump a little. Well, last week I messed it up, and I was like, yeah. it was kind of like one of those brain farts. I was like, what are we doing again? What do I say? Yeah. And and I wanted to just come out you crushed hot. it. You yeah, did. Yeah, and just showing yeah. you what I got. I'm excited. Well, I feel like I have to step up my game because you're a little under the weather. A little bit. You know what I mean? You got some tissue I, I over there. I should step up my game. No, it's okay. I got the lozenge in. I got the tissue. Got my tea. I'm going to tell you what I tell my friends on the golf course. Yeah? When you see one footprint, set of footprints in the sand, <laughs> you're not yeah. alone. I'm carrying you, buddy. I got you. Thanks, pal. But it's a sand trap joke. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it. you got, got it. it? Yeah, yeah. They laugh about like you it's did. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's, it's okay. Uh, so we've got an amazing show for you, but I want to go through some memes that I found on the internet. Right, the modern the modern day uh, education. You know what, it's almost like fortune cookie. It is, it's better than fortune cookies. I you know, and, and sometimes you get some winners. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes you get some losers. Yeah. But I, the ones that I really like are the ones that I can't stop thinking about the rest of the day. As a matter of fact- You started the, sending these to me last weekend. Well, that, so what I wanted to do was if I go, I'm going to send them to you, then I can bring them up on the show. Yeah. And so I thought, I'm going to send them to Dr. Matt, and that will be my reminder oh, to bring them up on I the show. See. So this is the one I sent you last week. And I thought this one is brilliant. And it's so simple- but yet so honest and, and just wonderful. Here it is. Stop cheating on your future with your past. It's over. And I think so many of us do that in the recovery. And I think not only just in recovery or in addiction, but in life. You know yeah. what I mean? We are cheating on our future with our past. And the reality is, is there's nothing you can do about what's in the past. And, 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 and if you dwell upon it, you're not being present. You're not being authentic. And you're only hurting your future. It makes cognitive sense, actually. I hate to say that. But from a cognitive psychology standpoint, people who overfocus on their past have much higher rates of regret and depression. Therefore, they don't do as much in the present. They, they, they're not as active in improving their life. So, that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, in recovery, I, I, there was a lot of things being said in the 45 days that I was in inpatient treatment. And sometimes it was beautiful. Sometimes mm -hmm. it was crass. And I'm going to kind of uh, meet this one in the middle. But this one guy told me, he goes, listen, if you got one foot in the past and one foot in the future, you're peeing on the present. But he didn't say pee. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and it's one of those things that I was yeah, like, yeah. you're right. I mean, it, it is one of those things that we can't figure out because there's nothing we can do about it. You know, and, 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 and I look in my past and uh, Facebook will remind me of things that I've done in the past or like inevitably, even at the 50th birthday party, someone come on and goes, last time I saw you, you were so hammered. And that yeah. breaks my heart that that's his last memory of me. You know what I mean? And, and, and I think about it and I go, but that's not me anymore. And, and it's now it's not his last memory of you. So if you think of it that way, You've you've changed by being in the present, by being present focused, by being forward thinking. Now, his last memory of you is you having fun being five years sober at your 50th party. So so you're you know, if people want to have a different Casey experience, there's one available now. Amen. Now, let me ask you this as a therapist, what is something you could instruct or something you could help people do? to kind of not live in the past, not focus on the future, but be more present. Is there is there is there things to do to help people get in that mindset? Yeah, definitely. I mean, generally, the reason mindfulness 
has become so popular in our culture right now is that's the essence of mindfulness is learning to be in the present. But to your point, I guess what I would say to somebody is if you're having what I call intrusive thoughts, thoughts that just pop into your mind and they're about the past, then I would say I wouldn't try to push it away. I would identify it. Okay, what am I thinking about here? What's my thought? And is there anything I can do about that in the present moment? Or is there a message in there that I need to learn? Because yeah, you've said that before. Yeah, that- is, there, is there information in that that helps me right now? Sometimes there is. You know, sometimes you might have a thought that there's a wrong that I need to write mm-hmm. or an apology that I need to give. So you know what? Get busy doing that right now. And that intrusive thought will go away. Most of the time, though, if you have a future, like a worry about the future, or a, a regret about the past that's intrusive and popping into your mind, and you ask yourself, is there anything I can do about this right now? I would say the majority of the time you're going to have to say, no, I just have to accept that that was something that happened. So I'm not going to cheat on myself with my past. Mm-hmm. I'm going to accept it and maybe recommit to being the person I want to be in the present. So what does the present me do? And you refocus on the present. Does that make sense? It makes a hundred. But a lot of times people try to push away those worries or push away those regrets. And so you're doing battle. It's kind of that one foot in the past, one foot in the future thing. And so what you want to do is just ask yourself, okay, let me see. What is that thought? Is there something I can do about that right now? If there is, I'm going to do it in the present. If there isn't, I'm going to use some acceptance and just move forward. Now, that answer was a perfect segue into my next meme that I found on the internet. Good. And this one is, how many times, Dr. Matt, have we had somebody sit in that seat right there Mm -hmm. and said the first time they did a drug, the first time they tried alcohol, they felt better. They felt normal. Yeah. Happens all the time. It was a relief. Yeah. But here's one I found that I think beautifully sums up alcohol and drugs. Booze and drugs don't make you feel better. They make you feel less. And that might be a nice place to visit, but it's a dangerous place to live. Hmm. Okay. Like less as in sort of it numbs you out or it gives you a break, a little relief. Because we've had so many people who have sat here and started drugs or started alcohol and only 20 years later find out they suffered from anxiety. Right. And so they were feeling all the feels and they didn't want to feel that anymore. They wanted to feel a little less. They didn't want to care as much. And that's what alcohol and drugs do. A a common statement people make is like, oh, this is how everybody else feels. Oh, this is great. Yeah. Yeah. And when in reality, most people feel anxiety ridden and and are kind of hypersensitive, but we don't talk about it. So we don't know that everybody's going through the same thing. Right. Right, right, right. No, exactly. And and so, what and I lo- especially for young people who don't have very much life experience, you know, a lot of times people are trying drugs and alcohol in, you know, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, and you just don't know yourself and you don't have any life experience at that point. So you kind of think you found the solution, right? You're like, oh, this this is my jam. I'm the gonna kids keep would doing say this. A cheat code. You felt that you found there a cheat code. Yep, it's a workaround. It's a workaround. And yeah. the other thing I love about this is they go, it might be a nice place to visit. Now, this will take us back to when parents and that's honest, right? Elder statements, you know, they they, they lie to us. They're like, it's you remember bad. when we were kids, they were like, oh, you'll feel terrible yeah. if you drink alcohol, it, 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 or yeah. smoke weed, and then they do it the first time. They go, wait, <laughs> wait a second, somebody's <laughs> somebody's lying. Yeah, this, if they're lying about this, what else are they lying about? Right, right and so right. it is a nice place to visit sometimes for some people. And there's a lot of people out there who can drink like a gentleman that it doesn't ruin their life and they can seem to navigate it and, and all that. But that's not what I'm talking about. Is it? It's a dangerous place to live. Well, I think we've talked about it's a it's a it, it's better to be honest with your kids. And you say, listen, there's a reason alcohol's been around forever. There's a reason 
drugs are popular because at first they do generally feel good for most people. Yeah. It, it is a nice feeling for most people. An escape. But it'll never be as good after the first time. It gets worse each time. And for most of us, it is problematic in our life. It may not be an addiction, but think about one of the things that's a problem is we talk about things in black and white terms. Mm-hmm. Either a person has an addiction I live in the gray or area. they don't have an addiction. Right. And so we're like, oh, if I don't have an addiction, that means I don't have any problems. And that is not true. Alcohol causes a lot of problems for people and they may not be addicted. They may only drink socially or on the weekends. But if you think about what it what it does to your body, you know, uh, what it does to your pocketbook, you know, all these kinds of your things. Your career. Your career. I used to tell people all the time. Uh, How many times you have to apologize to people because yeah. of things you said? It, it's funny you say that because we do live in a society where everybody puts it in either black or white. Yeah. But we actually live in a reality where most people are living in a gray area. Sure. And I used to tell people that all the time. I, you know, I mean, yes, it is a problem, but it's not that big a problem. It could, you know what I mean? And so yeah. I tell everybody that I live in this gray area. And I think there's a lot of people out there living in a gray area. But eventually, like our friend Rob Eastman would say, you sit in the barbershop long enough, you're going to get a haircut. Yeah. Eventually, there's, if, if, it's a, if it's a game of longevity... Drugs and alcohol are going to take you down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can't. You can't outlast them. No. That's for sure. Because you know, they're not only they're a constant. You now need to take more to get the same feeling or less. Well, and remember the the levels of alcohol use is, or drugs. There's use uh-huh. at the bottom. Then there's abuse. Mm-hmm. Then there's dependency. Then there's addiction. And I would say everything from abuse to addiction, that whole spectrum, the majority of it causes problems. I I would imagine, I don't know this for sure, that the majority of people who get DUIs are not technically alcoholics, but they are abusing alcohol and making poor choices when they're driving. They may be dependent. And they may be dependent as well. But I bet the majority of people who get into trouble with alcohol are not technically alcoholics. And you know, on that scale you just told everybody about, it's not like an elevator. You don't get in it, and when you hit dependency, a light doesn't go off, or when it hits right, to abuse, right. a light doesn't go off. All of a sudden, you look back over the years, and you're like, oh man, I've I just jumped past that abuse elevator. right into dependency, yep. and I didn't even notice it. Exactly. Because it is a slow burn, and you know, mm-hmm. for some, it's very quick. I think for the most, it's probably slow, and the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're sitting in the world of addiction going, how did I get here? And yep. you go, well, yep. look behind you for the past 20 years and let's really dissect it and let's sit down and see what a key and role. even if you're not technically an addict, it can ruin your life in a lot of ways. 100%. Yeah. See, that's what I love about memes. We just had an in-depth, <laughs> wonderful conversation, all starting from memes on the internet. I wonder if I approached the chair of the Department of Psychology and asked them uh, if I could design... A meme course, right? We could, we could. I'm not. I'm actually not totally joking. Here. Not. Like, I wonder if we could have a relevant psychological course, maybe upper division for psych majors, where we dissect memes with certain, uh, you know, about addiction or about relationships, about these kinds of things, uh, that are out on the internet right now. We, d- it's a discussion. Well, of course, maybe an honors course. They've been around for a reason because yeah. there's so much truth in them. And I remember the first one that ever really got me was nothing changes if nothing changes. Yeah, and that's I was one like, of your favorites. Yeah, it is my favorite. And people used to say that to me all the time. I was like, you're just repeating the same thing. That's stupid. And then you sit down and you talk about it for a minute and you go, but it's so 
So right. It is true. You know, there were so many different times that yeah. I would I would have a bad showing on the weekend, and I say a bad showing, but you know, get drunk, ruin a party, do something, right. and then on Monday I would promise my family, and I'd promise my kids, I'd promise my coworkers, I'm sorry about that. Things got out of hand. I promise it will never happen again. Right. But then I never did anything to change. The way I was doing it. It was just sort of a a hope. Yeah. But with nothing to back it up. Yeah. And so, yeah, of course it was going to happen again because I didn't do anything to stop it from happening again. Like in my mind, I'd be like, well, don't drink that much. But after four drinks, everything sounds good. And, you know, I was a fun pig. I was like, yes, let's go. Fun pig. I (laughs) like it. Yeah. Let's do it. Fun pigs never say no. Right. You want to do it? Yes, let's go. We didn't even tell you what the question is. I don't care. I'm in. I'm in. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And so that's the thing. And so I remember when they broke that down and I was like, but it's so bad beautifully written is that if nothing changes nothing well, changes memes have a have the potential for expressing simple truths in a short you know in a real short context and but so I think, I think that does get through to people but and but also I think a lot of people throw them away is just something that everybody says but if you stop and really listen and look at it you can always ask how does that apply to me yeah there's some right? wisdom in there because all of us have things we say we're going to change that we don't change we all have that so would I be your student teacher yeah, I think you're my TA. Okay, I mean, yeah, yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. Josh can't be though because no. he's not buying into this no. 100. percent uh-uh. But you, you can be my TA. He bought we'll, into we'll the low neck T-shirts, the but he's not buying into this. <laughs> <laughs> he can be the audio visual kid there go. that comes in and fixes things. I love it. Well, our guest today is Danielle, and uh, I thought for the longest time it was Danielle. Daniel. Daniel. Yeah. Yeah. You told me that you thought it was a guy. Yeah. Because we were and just. And then she didn't sound like a guy when you we called her We were just up. texting back and forth yeah. and I read Daniel and it was Danielle. Yeah. Reading's hard. Yeah. And so <laughs> she got here and I called her and it was a girl and I had to look at my phone. I was like, oh, I thought this was supposed to be. Maybe she's giving Daniel a ride. And I go, is this Danielle? And, and I'm still messing it up. Yeah. And she goes, yep. So how do you say your last name? Yarrington. How many years of sobriety do you have under your belt? Fourteen and a half. That's amazing. That's winning. Congratulations. Thank you. We're going to find out about your story, what you're doing in the world of recovery. Coming up next, you're listening to Project Recovery. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. Our guest today is Danielle, who's celebrating 14 years in recovery. Have they all been wonderful years? Um, No. (laughs) No, but they've uh, been a lot better than... When I was drinking, so. And so that was your DOC? Yes. Alcohol. Mm-hmm. So where does the story of Danielle begin? Um, so geez. I grew up out here in uh, Davis County, actually. Mm-hmm. I've been there my whole life. I'm still there. <laughs> um, typical Utah family. Um, how many siblings? I have six siblings. I'm right in the middle. Wow. So, so. you know, f- for people who live outside of the state, that sounds like an enormous family. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's average. It's fairly average. It's yeah. fairly average here yeah. in the state of Utah. Mm-hmm. And you being right in the middle, do you feel like you suffered middle child syndrome? Absolutely. <laughs> and so was it more of being unseen or working really hard to be heard? Um, being the peacemaker. That was my label, right? Like if somebody was upset, I was going to make sure they were okay. If conflict was going on with my older siblings, stay out of it. Keep the little siblings out of the way. Um, don't. Mom and dad, we're struggling enough. Don't get in their way. Don't cause any more stress for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, just right in the middle, it was like my three older siblings kind of had this one type of life, and my three younger ones had a different type of life. It's, and it, I just didn't fall in either category. It, when you're in the middle, kids will 
reflect on childhood and feel like I wasn't seen. Mm-hmm. You know, my needs weren't really anyone's priority. Um, sometimes they don't necessarily have bad feelings towards their parents, but it's kind of confusing to to have those feelings. Yeah, absolutely. It was, uh, I didn't feel like any type of anger towards my parents for it. It was just, I didn't want to be any more of a burden. And that's really a lot of what I started developing was just stay out of the way, be quiet. You don't need to be heard. You don't, you know, just so don't stuff cause your, stuff issues. your feelings, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned that uh, being right in the middle. My ex-wife had uh, seven brothers. Really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know So that. there was eight children. Wow. And it's funny when we'd go to family. She was the only girl. The only girl. So when we'd go to family parties, and this is when they were all a little bit older, they all had completely different childhoods. Like mm-hmm. the older four, that's when everything was rough. They were trying to figure it out. The money wasn't as prevalent and, and all that. And then the younger kids had everything. Yeah. And so it was almost you know like two different families. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if you think about it from a practice point of view, you, you, they got better parents probably, or at least more tired parents, yeah. the younger ones than the older ones. Right? One or the other, right? Yeah. I remember my uh, oldest brother saying that to my parents about my youngest siblings, the youngest brother. And he had done something when he's a teenager and my older brother's, I can't believe you let him get away with that. You wouldn't. And my mom was just like, we're too tired. Yeah. We're just too tired. It's not worth the yeah. fight. Yeah, exactly. So do you remember the first time you tried alcohol? Um. Yes, I think I was probably, I was 16, um, 16, 17, but I really didn't start drinking until I was 25, 26. Was alcohol okay in your family or was it no, not I okay? No, I grew up in a very Mormon family. Yeah, very so, religious. Very religious. So, so when you it were, was a bad thing. You didn't do it. So what got you to try it at 16? Um, I had a lot of anxiety and depression mm-hmm. um, in high school. I actually... Uh, Felt really isolated and just really didn't have a lot of friends. I had a couple of close friends, but I really didn't even go anywhere, do anything. Um, and I come home from school, go sit in my room, stay there. Um, I remember like sitting in my room thinking uh, my younger siblings would come home from school and I could hear them in the kitchen talking with my mom, telling them about their day and stuff. And I'm just like, how can they talk to her like that? Like they're just telling her everything. I would... I. I didn't feel like I could for whatever reason. Hmm. And so I just stayed in my room, a lot of anxiety and depression. Um, But I uh, got um, in a relationship with a kid at school who was um, smoking weed and drinking and stuff. He was a bad boy. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, for me feeling like I'm never seen and somebody's giving me attention. So I I actually... Uh, didn't even um, experiment with him. Um, there was a friend I had that was not the best influence either that I experimented with her and uh-huh. her sister um, and had started drinking stuff um, and uh, didn't really like it. I smoked weed a little bit, didn't like that either. Um, but I stayed hanging out with those people because I felt like I had somewhere to be, somewhere to fit in. They saw you. They mm-hmm. heard you. Mm-hmm. And and that's what we talk about at that young age all the time on the podcast, Dr. Matt, is when you're young, uh, acceptance means the world to you. Oh, yep. definitely. And you'll put yourself and do things that you normally wouldn't do just to be accepted. And if you're there staying in your room and you're feeling isolated, unheard, and all of a sudden you're being seen, you don't want to rock the boat. So you're, yeah. you're going to hang. Yeah. Having a place to belong is huge. Yeah, that's, you know, that identity development as a teenager is 
your prime drive is to figure out who am I. And part of that is where do I fit in? You know, I judge how I feel about myself based to some degree on how other people treat me. And, you know, am I, am I liked, am I disliked, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. Uh, We talked about early on in the podcast when parents talk to their children about drugs and alcohol and mostly it's scare tactics and tell them that it's bad. And I'm not disagreeing that it's bad, but you know, as we talked about earlier, I mean, there's there's some fun points to it. That's why people keep doing it. Mm-hmm. What was your parents' conversation with you kids about drugs and alcohol? Don't do it. Don't do it. It's wrong. And and that was more uh, based off of like coming from the religious aspect, right? It's mm-hmm. wrong. Mm-hmm. Don't do it. Um, and I think, you know, most addicts know what shame feels like, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's a very common thing that we struggle with. And some of that developed from that place of, um, from a religious aspect, when it is wrong, don't do it. And you do it anyway, and you like it, there's shame. There's shame about that, right? And then there's that feeling you want to start numbing out later, too. So even at the young age of 16, when you tried drinking a little bit with your girlfriends, did you have shame? Um, Yeah, I think I I really did. Yeah. (laughs) Flat out, yes, I did. Um, And it's probably why I didn't keep doing it at that point um but i kept hanging out with those people and ended up in a relationship with another addict um and ended up getting pregnant and getting married and it was actually i didn't start drinking until it was drinking was my way of holding a boundary with my ex-husband of don't come back if i'm out at the bars drinking with my friends you're i'm not home for you to come walking back in Mm. And it actually was like kind of my thing that gave me my out from a very unhealthy relationship. Now, we talk about that meme at the beginning of the podcast where, you know, it doesn't make you feel better. It makes you feel less. Mm -hmm. This seems like a prime example of not making you feel better, but making you feel less. Yeah, Yeah, there was a lot going on. There was a lot of codependency. There was a lot of shame because, you know, I still had my parents full support, but constantly like you need out of this relationship. You're better than this. What are you doing? Your kids deserve better. You know, all this stuff. And I'm. It was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. And. I slid into, here's another group of people from, I was working in a restaurant. So, you know, after the restaurant closed, a bunch of people, hey, let's go to the bar, is a place I fit in again. And could feel less of what I was, had to feel all day long. And it sounds a little bit like, um, you know, the way you're describing that's kind of a unique, I, I don't know that I've heard anyone on the show say it quite like that, that you were using drinking as a way of controlling the relationship with your ex and, and a type of avoidance, mm-hmm. being able to be away. So that tells me you struggled with assertiveness. Absolutely. You know, and so growing Absolutely. up as a as a kid in the middle, like you said, you were the pleaser, the peacemaker. Mm-hmm. So getting your own needs met wasn't something you developed. And I, I like the term appropriate assertiveness mm-hmm. that we do need as we grow up, if we have a healthy uh, self-esteem and self-identity, then we learn how to get our needs met and we we can set boundaries and share our expectations with people. But when we struggle with that, sometimes we feel like just expressing our own needs, like I don't want to do that or that's not for me. Something as simple as that can feel like conflict. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to create a problem. I don't want to start a fight. So we become great avoiders. 
Absolutely. And it sounds like alcohol was your, mm-hmm. instead of being able to be appropriately assertive and tell this ex-husband you didn't want to be around him, you just made yourself scarce by finding the crew at the bar. Yep, somewhere to hide out. Yeah. So you're 26, you're divorced, you're starting to drink, uh, and you're numbing yourself, and it's helping you avoid your ex. Does it instantaneously become a problem, or is it a slow burn? Um, I was instantly doing it on a regular basis. I didn't think it was a problem until uh, probably a few years into it. But, I mean, it was instantly a daily routine for me. So, yeah, it was a problem from the get-go. But I think it was the first time, you know, since 16 and 10 years, it's the first time I felt any relief from the chaos of my life. So you drink for a couple of years. At any point, does your family, does anybody step in and say, hey? Um... Oh, uh, yeah. You know, I um, so being a single mom, I had three kids at the time, and my parents were my main support. They were taking care of the kids while I was working, and, you know, they helped me out financially. They did a lot for me and a lot for my kids, um, probably too much so, because they would give me the talk every time they could, you know, hey, we're really worried about you. You know, you need to do something. They didn't really mention the drinking. I'm sure they knew it was going on, but it was just more, you know, your life is chaos. The kids are suffering. They need you home more. Like, what do you need? Even offering things like, um, you know, if you'll just call in to work for the week, however much money you would have made working at the restaurant, we'll give you that money. Right. Just take some time for your kids. And I would, no, 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 I got to do this. And the whole reason was, I would get off so late that my mom would just let the kids stay over. Mm-hmm. So my excuse was, no, 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 I got to go to work because then I knew I still had the bar to go to it at night. I still could go it do that. It would free you up for those mm-hmm. things. Yeah. And that's the things that addicts will do is manipulate a situation mm-hmm. to benefit us and still make us Absolutely. think we're doing the right thing. Yep. You yep. know, but that's because it's hard to it's hard to say not, you know, going to work is not the right thing. Right. That's a noble yeah. thing to work hard. And so, yeah, that that addict mind can kind of loop you right back into like, oh, no, I'm doing all the good stuff. I'm working hard. And then it allows you to have. But I mean, that need for affiliation Mm -hmm. is really strong in our adolescence, but it never really goes away. As adults, we need to affiliate with other people. And I don't want to skip over the fact that you said it was the relief from the chaos of your life. Mm -hmm. And I, I want us to pause on that for a second. Like. We all have something or some things that we use for the relief from the chaos of our life. And you might be thinking, oh, well, um, you know, if you're a listener to the show, you might be like, well, I've I've never struggled with alcohol or drugs, so I can't relate. Well, but how Let's about... Let's talk about 32 ounces of Diet Mountain Dew. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's talk about a big bucket of popcorn. Let's talk about, you know... Hours of Netflix. Yeah. Or like, scrolling on the Instagram. Oh, on your phone. So we all, if we're honest, we all need that because life is stressful. It's, it is chaotic at times, but stress is always there. The bills, it's tax season, all that kind of stuff. The kids, you know, are they okay? Do they have everything they need? Ex-husband. Are they getting everywhere they need to be? Ex-husbands or relationships. So, I mean, that's, that's huge. Yeah. You know, that you needed that. And it was working, like Casey says, it was working till it didn't. Yeah. Right? 
There's a difference between the healthy distractions and the unhealthy ones. Right. Absolutely. For sure. Right? But so, we all have them. Yeah. So yes. you're two years into this. Uh, you're manipulating situations to get what you want, which I understand as an addict. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, that that's what we do. At some point, it's got to become a problem. I don't want to get to your rock bottom yet, but there's got to be. At what point in your disease did you think, I might have a problem? Mm, I... Because I'll tell you, for me, myself, there was times that I thought I might have a problem, but I never, ever said it out loud because then that'd make it real. Like there was Exactly. Then somebody's going to hold you accountable, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't know if I'm ready for that. Yeah. Um, I, well, fast forward, I actually had ended up um, meeting somebody and getting married again. Mm -hmm. And it was a few years into my second marriage that um, I realized, like, I was drinking earlier in the day. I was drinking, you know, my shift at the restaurant started at 11. There was times where, you know, 10.30, I needed to take a drink before I went to work. I was throwing up every single morning, not because I felt hungover, but because alcohol was killing me. It was shutting down my body. And every morning, my routine was get up, start getting ready. At some point, I'm going to throw up before I go to work. And... Then, you know, in my head as I'm sitting there throwing up, like so many people do, I'm never going to do this again. God, please help me. I'm not going to do this again. Get right? me out of this one, I promise. I swear I won't drink again tonight. I swear I'll, I'm not going to have a drink today. And then by the time I'm getting off work and that just habit and rituals kicking in and my brain's going crazy and the anxiety, that craving anxiety, right? Like, ah, uh, it's time, it's time, it's time. And so much in the fact that you'll even lie to yourself or go, well, I'm just going to have one. Just one. I'm just going to have one. one yeah. Just to calm It'll the noise. It'll be different. It'll be yes. different. I'm just going to have one. Mm-hmm. And then you have one and it's like, but you know, two. Two's all right. And then next thing well, you know. What about three? You're at the club. Yep. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, and I was drinking at work. I mean, restaurants is not that hard. There's a lot of people doing that, you know, so some of us were already taking shots before we even I would say that's and, the prevalent culture at restaurants, yeah, absolutely. right? The people mm-hmm. I know who've worked in and still work in restaurants, like, you know, it, it creates sort of a family environment and people are all, you know, smoking and drinking. That's that's yeah. very common, right? Yeah, and it's an industry that doesn't drug test. Yeah, yeah <laughs> right? for a reason, so, probably. I mean, you will find a lot of the people who are using in the industries that aren't going to drug test you. Sure. That's just... So and yeah, it's a it just cash kind of business for, for a lot of the servers. Mm-hmm. So I always yep. had money to get to the bar that yeah. night. Yeah. So let me ask you this, though. You, so you say you got remarried mm-hmm. and you're still working at the restaurant and then you're going out after work. How did that sit with your new husband that um, you weren't home after your shift was finished? So he well, at that point, um, he was I met him at the bar. Oh, OK. <laughs> I met him at the bar. But he's a, he's a normie. Like he's experimented with the drugs and stuff in the past. Um, but he, he can kind have, of use it, take it or leave it kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Um, and so I don't think he understood. I mean. Um, did he, he meet you at the bars or did he want you to come home? Uh, no, he'd go with me. Yeah. Okay. Because um, this, well, you know, like in the time we were dating, my parents would still be the ones babysitting for me. So I still had. We just kind of our relationship, a lot of it was, hey, let's go out, let's go out, let's go out. Um, And uh, we had um, a daughter together, so now I've got four kids. Um, And we 
it was more of a weekend thing. Um, at the time, my ex-husband was around enough that my kids had every other weekend with him at the time for a little bit. And on those weekends, um, my new mother-in-law would take our baby. And so we don't have any kids. We got a whole weekend free again. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, and then we'd drink at home if we weren't going out. So um, it was still a daily thing for me. When, on some level, it was still going yeah. on every day. Okay. Your husband, who you classified as a normie, somebody who can drink like a normal person, does he ever start to question your drinking? Um, so he ended up with a job that um, was rotating shifts, and he would do some days and some graves. So there was a point where when he's working his graveyards, he thought I was at home and I wasn't. And so when I started lying and hiding some things, um, then yeah, that's when he's like, look, this is getting out of hand. This, there's a problem going on. So um, I, it was about this time too, there was a lot of some chaos started happening with my ex-husband, which was the place where um, he's been absent since, like for now, I don't know what, 16, 17 years she has not been mm. around. So there was just a lot going on with that that just caused me more stress, more anxiety, some trauma, some trauma with my kids. And that just threw me over the edge. I had no solution to handle what was going on other than alcohol. Um, and I went so far into it that he actually was, we were fighting a lot. He was ready to divorce me. My three sisters showed up at my door one day, um, knocked on my door, and were like, we need to talk to you about your kids. And I wasn't having, nope. I wouldn't let them in the house. Nope, don't want to talk to you. You don't know what you're talking about. You need help with your drinking or else. We'll call DCFS on you. Your kids are going to be taken. Mom doesn't need to take care of them anymore for you. And... I remember being so angry and so mad at them for that. I just could not. I remember, you know, trying to slam the door. My sister was trying to stop me. And I was just like, get out. Don't want anything to do with you guys. Um, That was the point. That was my turnaround point. That was the point where somebody finally said enough. Somebody's going to hold a boundary with me. And. I talked to my mom and my mom did her, oh, it's so hard. I know it's so hard. Your sisters just love you, you know, trying to calm the situation. Um, told my husband, he just got fired up with, they need to stay out of our lives. Um, and it was kind of this, you know, thing. But um, my mom's like, let me just take care of your kids for a little bit and you figure out what to do. So now I'm sitting at home all alone. If my husband's at work, I literally was all alone because my mom's got my kids saying, let me just take care of them for you. And I had nothing to do but sit there with a bottle. Mm. Um, it got so bad. I remember going in, fighting with my husband on the phone because he was at work. And I went into a Friday night shift at the, at the restaurant, drunk. And nobody at the restaurant's saying anything to me about me being drunk, but I'm on the phone fighting with my husband. So I walk out back. And I'm just in tears, bawling, and everything's just falling apart. He's so mad. He wants a divorce. He's sick of my crap. Um, And 
I hung up the phone and I called a friend and I was like, everybody wants me to go to rehab. I don't know what to do. This is bullcrap. And they were like, then go to rehab. And I was like, I don't want to, like, how can I do that? How do I live without alcohol? I can't go. Um, I left. I walked out of the job and went home. And a our neighbors at the time were, were really good friends. And my husband had called the neighbor and was like, can you go check on her? She's not okay. Go check on her. I called her parents. Her parents are going to come pick her up and take her to detox. But go help her. Go sit with her. Make sure she's okay. I remember being so much chaos. My neighbor came to my house and I was sitting in, I was in my bedroom and I had a bottle and I was trying to finish it because I could hear her coming in the door and I was like, oh crap. <laughs> and just throwing stuff around the room like, I don't even know what's going on. It's just chaos. And she was just, Danielle, come on, let's calm down. You know, let me help you. And she just sat with me until my parents got there, put me in the car, took me to Lakeside Hospital and I did detox. Um, while I was in detox, they found me a rehab to go to, but there was a waiting list. So I go back home. My mom's like, I'm still going to take care of these kids. Let me take care of them. You don't need that stress right now. And she, um, I was waiting for the bed. My husband's still doing a shift. So I still got all this time where I'm alone. I don't know what to do. Right. And I was trying so hard, not understanding at that point any of the things that pushed me to drinking in the first place. I didn't get the core issue stuff. I didn't understand all that. And I just knew I was lonely and I felt all alone in the world. No matter who said they were supporting me and had my back, I just felt alone. So my husband trying to help me moved into the control phase. And during this time while I was waiting for the bed and he had to go to work, he would um, take my car keys so I didn't have a way to get to the liquor store. Um, and I don't remember. For some reason, I didn't have a phone, a cell phone. I don't remember why. Um, I don't know if that was part of, like, then I couldn't call friends and get it or if I broke it. Like, I don't know why I didn't have it. But I remember craving so bad one day and just struggling and not knowing what to do that I walked down to the gas station and called my husband at work from the payphone. And when he answered, he's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I said, nothing. I just, I didn't know how to talk. I didn't know how to communicate with people and tell them what I was going through. So I'm just like, uh, nothing. I just, just felt like calling. And he's like, well, I'm really busy. What's going on? Nothing. Okay. Well then can we talk when I get home? Okay. And I'm standing there hanging up the payphone, and made a plan of how I was getting the alcohol. Got the alcohol, got back home. And he, I remember I, it was 30 days sober for me and he came home and he could smell it instantly and another big fight. I go on another binger for a couple of days. Don't see him. He took off to his mom's. Don't see him. I'm drinking for a couple of days, end up back in rehab or back into detox at Ogden regional. Um, and got into a bed after that and did 45 days of treatment. In uh, the Ogden Regional, is that where you um, did it? No, I actually did treatment at Cold Creek. Okay. When Cold Creek was down in Kaysville. Uh-huh. It was when they first opened back in 2009. And so that was your first rehab? That was my only rehab. Congratulations. Thank you. So let me ask you this. Um, 
What took? What made sense? Because uh, we've had people on here. Uh, I myself have only been to one, but we've had people on here that have been to nine. Yeah, it's very four, rare. Five. <laughs> you, you know, we had somebody that went to thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah. Uh, so to hear somebody else who's only been to one and has fourteen years of sobriety underneath their belt, what made sense? What clicked? Um, something I really believe in is, you know. To be healthy and to be able to have this like life that you're not dependent on a substance, one thing you have to have is like a value system you're living up to, right? I think it's really difficult for a lot of people because it was never established in their life. I had a value system established from my upbringing, from my family. There was a strong value system there. I just lost it somewhere. It wasn't as hard for me to get in touch with what I already knew as it is for some addicts to get in touch with what they've never known. That's a good point. Yeah, you you had a value system in your childhood, and some people don't. Yeah. That's true. So I think that a lot of it was just clicking, sitting in there for 45 days of what they were teaching. In my head, I was like, you know this. You already know this. I felt the same thing. Uh, you know what I mean? It was like, you know, I go, and I would, afterwards we'd get done with like groups and I'd sit down and I was like, do you guys feel like you guys know this stuff? I, I but we just never have applied it. You know what I mean? Yeah. A yeah. lot of the stuff is you've learned through elementary school, through junior high, mm-hmm. through Boy Scouts, through all this other stuff, but you've never really applied it. It's kind of like those dumb memes. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, yeah. you really go like the, the information. But it, it does sink in, right? I mean, mm-hmm. like you're saying, Danielle, like it was there. It was just maybe dormant. Yes. And yeah. you needed to reconnect with it. Yeah. And one of my biggest struggles, with, along with the, not being assertive, was the self-esteem that goes, you know, hand in hand with it. Um, and I know growing up that my parents would tell me, you know, like, you're amazing. You're so smart. You can do anything you want. Like, it wasn't that they didn't try to build that in me. Um, but for whatever reason, I... It just, it didn't sink, the self-esteem didn't sink into me as a kid. Um, and I finally found my voice in rehab. It was like, no, people aren't going to treat me like this. It's okay for me to say no. Yeah. Do you remember the first time you spoke out in rehab? And it was probably scary because, I mean, I kind of did the same thing that I was, and then, and I thought, these guys are going to tell me to shut up. <laughs> You know, and yeah. then somebody's like, yeah, I feel mm-hmm. that way too, you know? And so I totally understand you talking about finding your voice in rehab mm-hmm. because, you know, it sounds like your whole life that you've been this peacemaker, uh, you know, just kind of seen but not heard and just kind of always been in the background and that you've had a voice and you've wanted to share it, but for some reason just never did. And now you're finally getting it and mm-hmm. realizing that you do have something to say. Yeah. And, you know, and as much as like, I know my parents tried to establish the self-esteem in me, but, you know, when you're trying to be that peacemaker too, seven kids in a house, sometimes it's easier to be quiet. Oh, I would have, (laughs) Right? There's some of them that just have the personality that they're going to be heard no matter what. Yeah. So I'll just step back. Do any of your other siblings, have they ever struggled with substances? Um, I have one brother who has, uh, he struggled off and on. He's never done treatment. He's, he does. He's okay. Like mm-hmm. he's not currently in the thrills of addiction or anything. But he's had his moments with it. Started in high school. Um, but uh, there's definitely a lot of mental health, depression, anxiety in my family. 
Yeah, and that, you know, mental health is often the reason why, you know, Mm -hmm. self-medicating, why people start, you know, I've said it before, it's, it's it's meme level intelligence. When I say people just want to feel good, like, and if you look at pretty much everything we do every day, it has that tint to it, right? Like we're just trying to feel good. And so when we feel anxiety, when we feel depression, when we have some of those self low self-esteem issues, we'll, we want to feel better and we want to feel better now. Mm -hmm. And so since none of us, I don't think in this room grew up with learning about mindfulness or meditation or therapy. Um, we turn to the things that make us feel better right away, a relationship, mm-hmm. a substance, a video game, you know, anything to sort of numb and check out. And for some people that hooks them at a young age, right? Yeah. I wish they would teach us mindfulness and meditation in elementary school. Absolutely. You know that, what? They that are. so beneficial because right yeah. now I can play you, Mary Had a Little Lamb on a recorder, which has done <laughs> nothing for me in life. That hasn't helped out? Not helped out really? once. There's never been a call for Casey in a recorder. You run out to your car and get the recorder. But had I been taught meditation and mindfulness? Well, guess what? What? Some, some school districts are doing that now. We have three Davis County people right here on this on the microphones. And Davis County, I'll give them props. They have had in-school and after-school programs for a few years now mm-hmm. where they're teaching mindfulness. And and uh, the the research around the country on little programs in different schools and school districts, it really does show that it benefits kids as they grow. They get yeah. better grades. They have higher self-esteem. They're less likely to engage in substance abuse. Um, it's really doing its job. But I agree with you. I, I wish our whole country would embrace it uh, more pervasively. Danielle, I've got to ask you, and I always hate asking this question, but I think people at home want to know, you're still with your husband. Yes. Yep. And uh, kudos to him. Uh, sounds like an amazing guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, sounds like you kind of went through the ringer and he went through the ringer and uh, you guys are working it out. I think people at home would want to know, why do you think it worked out? Because he did his work. You know, I think there's a lot of family members um, working in the industry. A lot of treatment centers have really good family programs. People who are utilizing that seem to be doing better on average, right? Um, Meaning not just the person with the yes. addiction, but the other key family members are involved in treatment as well. Here's yeah. a fun fact for you. We've got we got Danielle because of Lizzie Dankers. Oh, yeah. She gave me Danielle's number. And I remember now, still to this day, when Lizzie and her husband were here mm-hmm. and they said... Either you grow together mm-hmm. or you're going to grow apart. Absolutely. And if only the addict is doing work and the other spouse is not. The addict will leave the <clears throat> spouse behind, right? Yeah. Yep. And yeah. so you've got to grow together. And it sounds like your husband was willing to grow with you. Yeah. And there, you know, it is so hard to hear a family member say, I'm not doing that. I don't need to. I'm not the one with the problem. The thing is, is it's Family addiction, addic- addiction go. is family disease, right? We've yep. heard that. We know that. When I get unhealthy, people around me that love me and are trying to help me start doing unhealthy things, adapting to trying to figure out what's going to work for me, right. right? So they start developing very unhealthy ad- habits too, where the codependency comes in, the enabling comes in, no you, boundaries. You mentioned your mom, and it sounded like sort of in a sweet way, she was like, sweetheart, let me take care of your kids. Yeah. And you figure things out. So mom was doing what she knew how to do, which was take some pressure off you. But unfortunately, that left you at home alone with a bottle. Yep. And so it enabled me it to enabled keep doing. You. And what yeah. a sweet mom to try to do something mm-hmm. nice for you. 
Um, but that's why we as family members, we need to be educated on what is the right thing to do. Not our inclination, not the not the sweet thing. Yeah. The sweet thing isn't always the right thing. Absolutely. And I think, you know. Well, but real quick, because I, I don't want to let this get by. Family members do the sweet thing and sometimes the easiest thing. Yeah. And, and I don't want to say it because, I mean, because <laughs> the, the hard thing to do is tell your kids, no, figure this out. But right. we don't want to do that because we don't want to have that uncomfortable conversation. Yeah. But that's it right what when you say the easy thing it is the thing that's causing them the least emotional distress yeah right but your sisters came and got in your face right? they did the hard thing they did the hard thing and you know i like i said i was so angry with them i was so angry with them but when it started clicking in my brain i couldn't be more thankful for what they did because that's a real act of love isn't it yeah. to know they're gonna come up against somebody who doesn't want to hear what they have to say absolutely yeah so now with 14 years of sobriety underneath you, uh, you're doing wonderful things. You work for Brighton Recovery, which has two inpatient treatment facilities in the state of Utah and two IOPs. But you do some- What's an IOP, Casey? Intensive outpatient program. <laughs> oh, that's good. It's, it's designed for people who don't have the 45 days uh, <laughs> that can go in or as a step down out of inpatient treatment. I like treatment. it as a step down. I think that's an excellent way to go inpatient and then- outpatient with an IOP. You know, when, when I talk to people and they'll, and they'll tell me, they're like, I, I don't, can't do 30 days. I can't do 45 days. I go, well, okay. So I want to try this IOP. And, and I'm not going to talk out anybody from trying. You know what yeah, I mean? Sure. But you go, <laughs> I'll tell you what, if you don't fix it now, it's going to fix itself later. And you're not going to like yeah. the way it works out. Right. And people are like, oh, I don't have 30 days. I was like, you need to find 30 <laughs> you days. You need to find 30 days. Because if not, I've seen how this ends yeah. and it's not good. Yep. So you work for Brighton and you do UR, which is? Utilization review. So I get the insurance authorizations for all the clients. Now we were talking about it in the elevator up and what a game, what a maddening thing that is to do to navigate insurance, not only one insurance, but different insurance com companies, what they pay and what kind of level of care they're going to get. I mean, mm -hmm. it, you, you got to be just screaming half the time. <laughs> It's a, it gets stressful. It gets stressful, especially when, you know, you've got in your mind that you are fighting for somebody's life, right? And it feels like sometimes on the other end of that call, they're not seeing it as a person. It's a number. Mm -hmm. It's a dollar sign. We, so I would say mental health in general needs people who are, who can build relationships and be persistent in their utilization review. We, we see that at our clinics at the University of Utah. And uh, it is, I think you said it perfectly. The person on the, the caretaking side, you, sees these people as people and realizes this is their health, this is their life perhaps, mm -hmm. and it, it feels urgent. And oftentimes the person on the other side is actually, and I am putting insurance companies on blast, because they actually will bonus people for giving less in terms of treatment. So if you're working for an insurance company, you will get bonused if you give out less treatment, mm -hmm. fewer dollars, you're going to have them float back to you. Isn't that just sick? It's horrible. It is. So thank goodness for people like you, Danielle, who are able to, I think you have probably the right personality and the right at life experience to be able to stick it out and make sure that the people that are coming to Brighton are, are, utilizing their insurance to the maximum. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so, it's so hard to try, you know, you got a family member like 
why why aren't they paying for this? Why aren't they paying for this? I I don't know. I can't tell you it's other hard. than it's, it's their hard, business. Yeah. Right? I've had things I've I've had patients break down in my office over their insurance bills mm-hmm. because at the end of the term or whatever, they'll come back and say, well, no one signed this paper. And then our office is like, no one sent us that paper, yeah. but the paper wasn't signed. So we aren't going to pay the full amount. And now this person is, I mean, loopholes. it's a game. It's, it's a really, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a sick game. Well, so, and when you look at like the insurance companies say we authorize based off medical criteria. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they're going off of like ASAM criteria. You have this layout. You learn what the SAM criteria is in school. You know what this is. Therapists have to write up their clinical reviews off this SAM criteria. And every insurance company has a different idea of what that criteria is. Right, I was going to say they set the criteria and we have to play catch up all the time. Yeah, we got to right? figure out what you think this dimension should be and what you think that one should be. Some insurance companies are like, you don't need to be impatient if you don't need medical treatment. Well, if they need severe medical treatment, they should be up in a hospital in a detox, not down with us. This right. is a different level of care. And it's, it is. It's like yeah. you know, one company to the next, they have a different idea of what let it me, looks like. Let me ask you this. Fascinating. This huh? is, yeah, it is. It really is. And I think this is kind of personal, but how important do you think the work is that you do at right now in your life? Um, <laughs> it's interesting you asked me that. So I actually do a couple different things. Mm-hmm. So I have that. That's my full-time job. And I think it's very vital because there's so many people, if they don't have somebody fighting with the insurance companies for them, it's not getting done. It won't. You're right. It's They don't know how to do it. It's They get discouraged. It's given up on. They don't have a way to get to treatment now, right? We should but, tell people at home that, you know, insurance is imperative when it comes to inpatient treatment facilities if you don't have any money. Most facilities are going to be anywhere from five to $1,500 a day. Easy. Easy. Easily. You, you know, you know what I mean, and so an insurance isn't covering the lion's share of it. There's not a lot of addicts who have days, that that's have a lot of that money. kind of money yeah. around twenty five grand, twelve grand, whatever it may be. No, and I mean, there's a few, you know, little resources of like scholarships and stuff, you know, to help, but not enough. There's not near enough of that. So it really is if you don't have insurance, um, and you know, a good policy, yeah, chances are you're not getting treatment. So you can get on Medicaid and there are bridge programs like up at the University of Utah. Mm-hmm. There's certain ones you can get. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I'm just telling you, it, there, it th- is that world to navigate obstacle. is tricky and well, hard. You, you need an expert. And, you know, my education is not in how to navigate insurance policies. So I rely on other people just like everyone else does. So yeah. that is your full time job. And it sounds like you have a. a... Well, so, yes, it's very important work. <laughs> but for me and my recovery, um, I actually straight out of uh, rehab decided I wanted to be a SUDSI and started- Tell everybody what that is. A substance use disorder counselor. So I I just made a decision. That's what I'm doing. That's the direction I'm going and got into the program up at the U, um, completed that. And right after I got my license with the state, um, Cold Creek, where I had gone to treatment at, I got a phone call from them saying, hey, we heard you got a license. Do you want to come interview for a job? And I was like, wow, you know, because Cold Creek saved my life. So um, I worked there for about eight years. I worked in residential and IOP PHP. So and they had a sober living. So I had all aspects of that field. Um, Learned a lot. Worked with amazing people. It became a big piece of my sobriety. I didn't do 12 steps. 
I didn't have that community. Um, part of the reason was when I was in residential, I was talking to my therapist telling her that I wanted to do this. And she's like, okay, you need to think about how you're going to do your recovery then because you can't be a counselor and walk into those rooms where your clients are and invade their space in their meeting, right? You need your own place. There's professional means, which actually are not very popular in Utah. It's very hard to find. Um, so they're needed order, though, aren't they? Yeah, they are yeah. very much needed. And so um, I developed, I found other ways around it. Like a lot of my accountability to my recovery was one, my commitment to showing up to family activities and meetings. Like I'll be accountable and show up to these things because that those are things I skipped out on when I was drinking. Um, two, I went back to church for a little while. And that was like my weekly meeting for me, right? Mm -hmm. My spiritual uplift. When I, yeah. And when I started working with, um, working in the field and working as a clinician, I realized that was my spiritual connection. And I, when I started doing um, UR, when I started working on the insurance side and wasn't face-to-face -face with clients as much, I started losing a lot of that. And so I've had a couple different opportunities. One of them is I help out Lizzie at her facility. So I do cover some groups here and there, um, work maybe one-on-one -on -one with their individual client, individual sessions with clients. And then I have a friend um, who owns a private practice that I can do individual sessions with substance abuse primary um, clients through her private practice. So That's I can great. have my face-to-face -face and my spiritual connection still with clients. You're proving, you're proving my, my theory. And that is, and I've said a lot on the show, People in recovery do the most for communities. They really do. They give so much of their time. It benefits you, mm -hmm. but think about all the benefit that you give out to other people. Yeah. And I, I hope. So I'm going to pull this back around to self-esteem. So you mentioned your parents always celebrated you and said nice things about you. And I think that's what most parents do, but it didn't really sink in. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons it may not have sunk in, in addition to your own temperament and place in the family and all those kinds of pressures was you weren't necessarily having mastery experiences. And a mastery experience is when, preferably a kid, but for us adults as well, when we get celebrated for something, but then we reflect on our role in that positive mm -hmm. outcome and own it. Mm -hmm. Like, can I own my role in positive outcomes? That's a mastery of myself meaning a lot of kids, they'll do well at school or in sports, or for Casey, it might've been hip hop dancing. Sure. Yeah. Um, and everyone celebrates that. But if the parent doesn't follow up and say, how is it that that happened? How did you do mm -hmm. such a great job? And they don't train the child to go, yeah, I guess it's because I put in all that extra hip hop dance work, uh -huh. right? All those hours spinning on my head or whatever it is. And so for you, I hope that as an adult now, you're taking the opportunity to occasionally reflect on like, well, how is it that I got that person's insurance to pony up and pay for the full treatment? Or how is it that um, some of my clients are staying sober and, and having better lives? Mm -hmm. What's my role in those positive outcomes? Yeah. Because even as adults, we need to work on our self-esteem. Absolutely. And, you know, I think one of the biggest um, benefits I've had at learning all this stuff for myself is it changed my parenting style. Oh, yeah. Right? So now I know better, I can do better, and I can teach it to my kids a different way. Um, and it's something that I wish I had known when my kids were younger and their self-esteem was developing. 
that I recently heard was um, when you're proud of your kid, instead of saying to them, I'm so proud of you, so they rely on your pride, right? You being proud, mm. you ask them, aren't you proud of yourself? Yeah, yeah. Right, so they go. can be like, yeah, I'm proud. Yeah. I don't need to rely on you to say you're proud. I love that. Um, and I, I think like these little things, what a difference it would have made in my life or a difference even for my kids if I'd known it when they were younger, you know? And, um, but it's, it's crazy everything I've been through and I think there's a reason, right? And something happens in my life and I clicks in my head, this is the reason. This is why my higher power did this for me. This is why he put me here. This is the reason I get to use a skill now that I learned 10 years ago. And then a couple of years down the road, something else happens. And I was like, oh, here's another reason. It's not just one thing. Recovery is beautiful, isn't mm-hmm. it? It really is. And the more you just focus on it and roll with it, the more it keeps coming back. The more you it. jump in, the better it gets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what I love about you, Danielle, is it sounds like your whole life you had something to say, but you couldn't find your voice. And it sounds like you finally found your voice and you're using it. And because of that, you are going to help so many people. So thank you for stopping by and sharing your story. I really think it's going to help. And I think you're doing wonderful things. If people in the Davis County, which is in the middle of Utah, would you know uh, would like to use your services, how do they get hold of you? Uh, good. Good question. Okay. We can put it in there some other time. I, yeah. I've got, um, I do have an email for the private practice that they could reach out and contact and me. We'll have Josh link that if you'd like. Okay. Yeah. But thank you for stopping by. Dr. Matt, your thoughts on Danielle? Just beautiful, wonderful story. Thank you so much for coming to share it. And Thanks for um, having me. I, I teach development to the psychiatry residents at the U. And we have this whole month going on right now where we're talking about development um, every single week. And I hope some of them could listen to this and, and understand my points that I've been trying to get across to them is that we're never too old to continue to develop in a healthy way. Sometimes we find ourselves a little underdeveloped because we missed out on certain things in childhood or adolescence. But it doesn't matter how old we are if we recognize I'm not broken. I'm just underdeveloped, and if I put in the time, I can catch up. So I, I, that, I think your story is a, a story of healthy, positive personal development and growth. And thank, thank you. you for listening to another episode of Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what, Dr. Matt? It's KSL Podcast. Danielle, Daniel. I mean, <laughs> they're pretty close. I like Danielle better. I do, it's, too. It's Fits. pretty, yeah. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.